Take your Bibles with me now, please, and go to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our series through this letter. This morning, our focus from this text that Peter directs us to be thinking about is Jesus Christ. We'll see that as we work through this text together. This picture, I think we have it up there. Yeah, this picture was taken in April of 2016 of Queen Elizabeth II as she was celebrating her 90th birthday. It's a picture of the queen surrounded by her youngest grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. All of these children have this incredible privilege that very few children in the world have. They're related to the Queen of England. But one of them has the singular, unique distinction of being an heir to that throne. Prince George's unique connection to the Queen means that his identity, his destiny, will be different from the rest of the family members pictured here. His identity, his purpose, is shaped by that relationship. Potentially, he will one day be the king. At the 2018 Gospel Coalition Women's Conference, Carrie Sandham, a Bible teacher and speaker from Britain, used this illustration to make the point that our identity and purpose in this life is tied to our relationship to Jesus Christ. That relationship determines our identity and our purpose. In our text this morning, Peter wants you to believe and better understand that your relationship to Jesus will determine, it must determine, your identity and your purpose. Look at verses 4 through 8 in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is God's word to us His people. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do. Let's ask for God's help. As we look at this text together. Father we come before you recognizing our need. Of your spirit. To speak through his word. To again reveal yourself to us. Lord we do want to see Jesus. But we know that can only happen. As your spirit opens our eyes. As he humbles our hearts. As he shapes our will and our behavior. So Lord do the work again that only you can do. Show us our Christ, show us our need of him, convince us of our need to turn to him again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In this letter, Peter is urging these suffering persecuted believers to endure, to stand firm in the grace of God. He's like a coach urging his team to keep fighting 
when they're facing fierce opposition. So as they're facing those hardships, where will Peter begin? It's very important to understand how Peter and really how God's word counsels us to think when we're facing pressure, when we're going through life, when we're facing opposition to our faith. Where does Peter begin? He begins with the gospel in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1. When you're struggling with doubt, when you're struggling with frustrations, when you're feeling out of step with the world of being isolated or ostracized, when you're feeling perhaps even that you're being persecuted, the Holy Spirit, through these words of Peter, urges you to remind yourself of how God sees you. He's saying again, as the Bible does over and over again, don't evaluate life through your physical, temporal eyesight. Remind yourself of how God sees you, of what he's done for you. Remember your identity and your purpose. Now, beginning back in verse 13 of chapter 1, Peter began giving us a series of five commands of how we're to live in a world that is hostile to our faith. We are to live in hope, we're to live in holiness, we're to live in fear, and last week we saw that we're to live in love and with longing. So now what would you expect Peter to say next? As we've been working through this letter, we're we're seeing his structure, but what would you expect him to move on to say? I might expect him to continue giving us these kind of commands of how we're to love God. How we're to live in the midst of opposition. Or maybe to explain another aspect of the Christian life. But that's not what Peter does here in verses 4 through 10. It's almost as if he hits pause. And says, now let's, let's just make sure we have something very, very clear. He says, I want to remind you again who you are. And why you must obey the commands that I've been giving you. It's important to understand what Peter's trying to accomplish here. Look look again at the text. Just skim back over it. Ask yourself this question. Is Peter encouraging me to take any specific action in these verses? Look at it for just a second. He's not, is he? No actions are commanded. Instead, Peter in this section is calling us to better understand To believe something about our purpose and identity in this life. Do you see that? That's Peter's burden. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that will shape our thinking and our beliefs. As that does that, that works itself in us. It changes who we see ourselves to be. It changes our affections and our understandings for Christ. So that we will then obey and be shaped. In our behavior. So, in this passage, Peter is giving us God centered, Christ exalting reasons for why we should live the way he's been explaining. The Spirit wants you to understand who you are in relation to Christ and his people, unless you be tempted to think, well, we already talked about that. The Spirit intends for this, remember. So, these verses are filled with explanations of who Christ is and what God has done in bringing us to himself. Peter argues in these verses that a person's response to Jesus is the only factor 
that determines his soul's eternal destiny. There's only two ways to live. Receiving Jesus through faith places you in this spiritual house that he'll describe to us. Rejecting Jesus, on the other hand, makes you stumble over him. He's the object. This morning, our two main points come directly from the text as Peter articulates who Christ is using this metaphor again and again of a stone, explaining how believers are related to him. First, Peter tells us that Jesus is the living stone. Verse 4 begins again, as you come to him, to come to Christ emphasizes not only that a believer has begun a relationship with Jesus through salvation, but it carries the idea of remaining with him. There's ongoing results. It means to stay in communion or fellowship with him. Throughout this entire section, look at it carefully, Peter is intent on highlighting the ongoing relationship that the believer has with Jesus. And he does so by using this strange metaphor, this this paradox. He says that Jesus is a living stone. That's supposed to catch our attention. It's supposed to draw us up short as we're thinking. Now, I'm not sure I'm an expert at science, but I don't remember being taught that stones are alive. So why is he using that as the metaphor? Stones aren't alive, are they? No. Not physical ones, but Peter calls Jesus a living stone. He's pointing out that the resurrection of Jesus, the life that he has, that he will live forever, is able to provide eternal life to those who trust in him. So again, he's identifying who we are in Jesus as connected to him. This passage is largely about our union with him. But then Peter describes Jesus as being rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The Jews rejected Jesus as that promised Messiah. They weighed his credentials. And they decided that he was found wanting. So much so that they forced him onto a cross. Though the arrogant, self-assured, religious elite of Jesus' day found him wanting, God the Father did not. The Father measured him by the standards of divine perfection. And remember what he declares of him at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was God's choice from before the foundation of the world to accomplish this miracle. We saw that back in chapter 1 verse 20. And God declares him to be precious. That word means costly, highly prized, rare. Now, Peter almost certainly understood Jesus as the rejected stone from Jesus' own understanding of the scriptures. We read Psalm 118 in our scripture reading this morning. That's a passage that's referred to throughout this passage. But Jesus talks about that passage as well when he shares the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew chapter 21. In that parable, when the owner of the vineyard sends servants to reap the fruit of his vineyard, the evil tenants beat the first servant and kill the following servants. Until finally the master says, well, if I send my son, these tenants will listen to him. But they kill the son 
as well. Jesus applies that parable to the religious leaders of the Jews. But the end of the parable is not that those wicked men win. In the parable, though Jesus is the one rejected and killed through the power of God, he's raised and he becomes the cornerstone. Jesus in the parable is pointing to his resurrection and saying the story's not over, even if you do what you want to do. In Acts 4, 10 through 12, Peter is preaching to some of those same Jews that were among the crowd, standing there screaming to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter says to them, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then the verse we know so well from Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else but this living cornerstone. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So why is Peter telling us this at this point in his letter? How is this the encouragement to stand fast? That's the theme throughout this book. Peter's readers can certainly relate to the rejection of Jesus Christ from both the Jews and the secular Romans. They're feeling this. They're experiencing it. They're tempted to doubt him. But Peter is intentionally seeking to align the believer's struggle in the world with the struggle, persecution, and death of Jesus. And he's saying, this is not the end for you. This is not the final word. Here's how this provides encouragement to us. The life of Jesus Christ serves to instruct us as his followers. Believers, too, are often despised and rejected for our commitment to Jesus. And what he's saying is, don't be surprised by that. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't believe that because Christianity isn't the most popular idea in the world, that it must be wrong or your thinking isn't right. Don't believe that your way, the way of Christ, is too narrow or foolish or out of style or out of date or just flat wrong because scientists or politicians or friends or co-workers or neighbors say that couldn't be possible. Our desire should not be to blend in with the world around us, to make sure that everybody thinks our view is right. Our goal is to point At Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be as Christians to avoid suffering and persecution at all costs. I think that's where the rub is in this letter for modern Christians in the Western world, isn't it? We hear a book that says you're supposed to go through suffering and we say, well, I don't have much time for that book. I'm too convinced of the American dream. But that's not how God's people are to think of their life on this planet as exiles and sojourners. What perspective are we to take? Often we interpret God's demeanor to us through our temporal circumstances. And Peter's warning them of this. 
As humans, we tend to think that because we are going through a difficult time, then we must have done something to deserve those circumstances. Maybe God is against me. But by arguing that believers' lives will follow the pattern of Christ's life, who was perfect and yet he suffered, God is reminding us that suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure. Lack of popularity doesn't prove what is true and right. As living stones, we will face opposition, not in spite of God's choosing of us, but because he chose us as he chose his own son. He's already told us we are chosen and precious as his son is. You see, God does not intend for our lives to be easy or comfortable, does he? But for many of us, we have an idol of comfort. We want things to be easy. We complain when they're not. We think something must be wrong. I must fix this. But Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is part of God's sovereign plan for you. Certainly, there are many different types of suffering, and sometimes we can be being judged for our sin. But if we're living for Christ the way that Peter's been saying, we're not to be surprised by this. Christians' lives and experiences are to follow the pattern of Christ's life. Now again, that doesn't mean we intend to call negative attention to ourselves or act in an arrogant or an obnoxious manner. I have the truth and you don't. We're called to speak the truth about Jesus with humility and gentleness to all of those within our sphere of influence. This salvation is available to all through Jesus. So we will be rejected at times. Our beliefs will not be popular. Even though Jesus was despised by men and suffered, he was honored and exalted by the one that truly matters. Christians can be sure that God views them in the exact same way as he views his own son. That's what Peter's saying in this united language. We're united to Christ. We will suffer like him but we will also be honored and exalted like him. So first, believers are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is a living stone. We are living stones as well. God is building his people one by one into a spiritual house, the new temple. This temple replaces the old. It's no longer needed. And God is integrating each individual stone, each individual believer, and placing them into the place within the building that he has designed for them to be. Now, we should carefully notice that in this image, Peter's informing us that Jesus himself is also included in this stone building. He's the first stone, the priority stone, the foundation stone. But he's in the building with us. In this picture, he's the foundation to the entire structure. And apart from him, the temple does not exist at all. Paul has used this important image as well in Ephesians 2.19. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, the building of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, Jesus Christ, you, church, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the significance? Through this image, you can see how important it is that we live holy lives, that we recognize who we are in him. The picture we have here of a stone wall is of a mason, a stone mason working and putting together. This is a facade of a stone wall, but he's taking individual pieces and intentionally selecting them and placing them within that wall. Peter says, we are the place, the temple. We have access to God here. The Christian church is not primarily a social community. It's God's temple where the transformed lives of believers are offered as a sacrifice to God. Do you see how Peter is re-emphasizing that he's called us to live in a different way? Coming to Christ then means that we've also entered into a relationship with the rest of God's people. This is a corporate picture. And it occurs not only in our generation, but as we're united in the truth with Christ into this spiritual temple, we're also united to his people of every generation. Do you see how beautiful and massive in scope this picture is? It's not just that God is building this building of our church, this spiritual building. He's building it of the church. And we're a part of that. Christians are together part of God's massive building project. This truth provides strength and assurance and encouragement to God's people that we are a part of something that cannot, that will not. It's impossible that it fails. It cannot be torn down, no matter how strong the opposition, no matter what wars dictators rage. It cannot stop the church No matter how bad things look in the present moment, when we are united to the living, resurrected cornerstone, nothing can knock down God's temple. That's reassuring, isn't it? You recognize the corporate nature, though, of this picture? Notice that all of the word pictures in this passage, if you look through there carefully, they're all plural. They're all corporate. We are not individual stones just lying around on the ground. We have a purpose and a place. We're being fitted together into the house of God. How we cooperate together matters. That's why Peter has just said, love one another. Every Christian has a part to play. The Spartan king once boasted to a visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta. As that visiting king looked around, he could see no wall. So he asked, where are these famed walls of Sparta? That Spartan king pointed to his army and he replied, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. Every living stone is important to the structure of the building. You need the body and the body needs you. Your presence And absence, your spiritual growth and health affect the growth and health of the rest of the body far more than you often recognize. So how are you contributing to the strength of that wall, of this building? 
Christians need each other to grow and stand together. Have you ever entered into this room and thought and paused and meditated for just a moment of the cares and the concerns and the hardships that the people around you are going through, have gone through this past week? So often we walk in here, we spend our few hours together, and we go on with very little thought of where our fellow believers are in this life. Do you realize some of them are suffering significantly with heartache, with physical stresses, with burdens? They need you, and you need them. We need to be an engaged and active part of a church family. You see, merely showing up in the seats is not what it means to be a church. Seeking to know and meet the needs of other Christians to participate in God's building up of the body is what he intends for your growth. Doesn't that reflect his care for you? Isn't that the purpose? It's not so that we have the best church in town. It's that we reflect his love to a watching world as we love one another. When we get sidetracked by our own priorities and purposes within a body, we lose sight of God's purposes and priorities. This word picture shows again that God intentionally places people into a body, even those that seem difficult to fit alongside of. We don't just go to church. We are the church. How are you actively fulfilling your necessary, your God-designed role in this body? How does God want to use you as you fit into this building, this spiritual temple? Are you loving others? Are you serving them? Are you seeking to find ways to do so? Maybe one suggestion is find at least one other person in this church and find out how you can pray for them. You see, you'll never be satisfied in a church body until you're actually serving one another in a body. You'll always find reasons to be discontent, reasons to move on, reasons to be unhappy. But if you're doing what God's called us to do, serving others, even when it's not easiest to you, you will recognize your identity and purpose as part of his family. Second, in verse 5, believers are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. The purpose of our being built up is so that we might function as God's own priesthood. And now Peter is mixing his metaphors. But that's intentional. God has saved us to serve, to function as those who have access to God and to show others the way to that incredible spiritual privilege. We are a priesthood. We are to be holy. We are to be his servants. Our lives are his. You see again the corporate nature of our identification and purpose as the people of God? He does not call us priests, a group of individual priests, but a priesthood. He pictures God's people here as a whole group of servants in his temple. Peter says that the purpose of our priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, what in the near context of the book do you think Peter is referring to? 
that answer is a little bit complicated. Almost every commentator that I read, every preacher that I've read has a different view on what these sacrifices are. But in the end, I think Peter was not specific for a reason. He's, he's just saying the way you live as unto Christ is part of your spiritual, Holy Spirit-filled sacrifices to God. Perhaps the nearest answer can be found in verse 9. We're given this new identity and purpose so that ultimately we might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we're to simply let Peter speak through this book, we might say our spiritual sacrifices are the good works, the holy life to which Peter has been and will call us to. He tells us that we're to resist evil and do good to keep our conduct honorable, to endure unjust suffering without retaliating, to live holy lives, fully committed to the king. Not only is Jesus the living stone, secondly, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is the cornerstone. In these three verses, Peter is quoting three Old Testament passages that use the same word picture of a rock. They're the only three Old Testament passages that talk about this rock in this way. He's quoting from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. This cornerstone is foundational. It's the foundation in line. The entire building was squared off of this one foundation stone. That single stone would establish the precise symmetry of the entire building. Think of how ancient construction was done. To ensure that the building would stand over the years, the cornerstone had to be flawless. Peter is telling us through this picture that the church takes its shape from Jesus Christ, that cornerstone, that foundation. Verse 6, believers in Jesus will never be put to shame. This is the first quote he gives us from Isaiah 28, the person who puts his trust in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. That foundation stone is solid. It's very difficult for us to understand the strength of this statement as translated into English. That whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In the Greek, this phrase contains a double negative. When the author does this, it intensifies that word. So here the phrase could be translated as the one who believes in Christ will never ever be put to shame it's impossible peter's saying believing in jesus means that god's people will never ever be abandoned or forsaken by god no matter how much they suffer in this life the foundation is jesus and it does not matter what popular opinion is it does not matter if wicked men take your life. The foundation still stands. Our strength and confidence are established in him. Secondly, responses to Jesus determine eternal destinies. One commentator aptly states of this verse, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with Jesus, each person is changed, one for salvation and another for destruction. 
One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about their daily routine and pass him by to build a future of their own design. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or he stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. The third quote tells us that rejection of Jesus will end in eternal ruin. Our world wants to tell you there are many ways you could take it or leave it. Jesus' claims, it'll be sorted out in the end. But Jesus says that's not true. That's not true. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus stumble over him, he says. They stumble because they refuse to obey the command to believe the gospel, and it is a command. Notice that the quote from Isaiah 8 includes two different words for stone. The first stone is much more common. It's about the size of your hand. Over the last few years, I've used river rock about this size as a border for some of our flower beds. And with the nature of foot traffic and children running through the flower beds at times, some of those stones may become displaced. As I'm walking in the yard, I might not realize that until I've stepped on one and that stone has gotten moved out of its path into my path. These are big enough that a person might roll their ankle on it if they step on it the wrong way. This is that first kind of common stone of stumbling. It's potentially able to cause an injury or cause someone to trip. But the second picture, this rock of offense, contains a description of a much larger rock. Picture the massive rock face of Table Rock. Have you ever hiked that path? Have you ever looked at it from far away? It's a massive piece of stone. It's massive. And just think, if part of that rock broke away and you were unfortunately in its path, you would be crushed. That's the picture of the second rock. It can crush you. Jesus is not to be trifled with. He's not to be easily dismissed or not considered. To reject Jesus is to choose your own doom. This is part of a gospel message. It's a kindness. It's love to you to say with a warning, don't reject this. It's as if you think you can make a difference by walking up to that massive rock face at Table Rock by kicking it. What do you think is going to happen? It will not move. It will not cry out. You will have changed nothing. You'll only injure yourself. And that's what the passage is saying. It's picturing. It contains a warning for unbelievers. It's saying, don't kick against that rock. Now, what are we to make of this last phrase? They stumble because they disobey the word. They disbelieve as they were destined to do. Commentator Thomas Schreiner explains this phrase this way. People who stumble and disobey are responsible for their refusal to trust in Christ. And yet God has appointed, without himself being morally responsible for the sin of unbelievers, that they will both disobey and stumble. See, Peter has been emphasizing throughout this letter 
the supremacy, the sovereignty of God. He's not shying away from the point that God is sovereign in salvation, but neither is he trying to answer all of our theological questions. The fact that God knows and initiates the salvation of man is intended throughout this letter to be a comfort. God reveals in Scripture that he's both sovereign over the good and the evil in this world without ever condoning man's sin. Consider these passages. Lamentations 3, 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. These are hard truths to reconcile, aren't they? But let the gospel help us. Even the most wicked and unjust act of evil committed in the history of mankind, God takes credit for. Peter says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's idea, he's saying. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what we see is there's responsibility in both. And yet scripture never allows for the guilt of sinful choices to be removed from sinful mankind, even though it affirms that God is sovereign over all things. Peter in Acts 4 indicts the Jews as guilty of murdering Jesus, even though it was according to God's plan. In executing Jesus, they were fulfilling their own wills. They're not coerced against their will. They did what they wanted to do. And notice again that Peter is not saying that Christians have no responsibility to share the gospel and verbally present it to other believers because God is sovereign in salvation. That's never a biblical conclusion. Never. We share the gospel with anything that breathes. Peter instead admonishes his readers repeatedly in this book to live in such a way that unbelievers will be persuaded to accept the gospel. And here again, Peter is saying a similar thing as he said in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Those who stumble over Christ and reject him do so because they choose to disobey this word. Human beings are responsible for their sin and yet somehow Peter's saying God is sovereign over all of that. They're not competing ideas. God is sovereign even over man's sinful choices. How these things fit together, we do not know. And that's not Peter's purpose. So why is Peter emphasizing God's sovereignty so heavily at this point? He did so in order to continue to comfort the readers. He's assuring them that the evil in this world has not somehow slipped God's notice. And just as he's sovereign in Jesus' rejection by sinful men, so he is sovereign in these Christians' suffering. He says, even though it's necessary at times. This is still under God's sovereign hand, and you can trust him to bring good out of it. He's saying, remember Jesus? 
Look what I accomplished there. Know I can do that in your life as well. So is your relationship with Jesus continually shaping your identity and purpose in this life? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know the Savior? Have you come to him? Or are you stumbling over him to your eternal ruin? Are you willing to submit to his right to rule over your life? Does this sound like a king that you can tell what to do? Understand this morning, he's offering salvation to any and all who will come to him. So turn from your own way and trust Christ for eternal life. Church family, believers, we're to be strengthened and encouraged that our faith rests on such a solid foundation. Our sights are not to be set on the popularity of the message in the eyes of the world. We are feeling it today. Christianity is becoming less and less tolerable. But that's okay. That isn't unexpected to God, and it shouldn't be to us either. We're not to avoid being different because of our beliefs in Jesus Christ. Then let these corporate pictures as well of our relationship to Christ and one another help you understand your need to stand firm together. That's part of Peter's plan. That's part of God's plan for you. You stand firm together with other believers. Do you see how valuable the church is, the people of God are? We've been called together and given life by Jesus Christ to demonstrate his excellency. His grace changes lives. It gives us a new identity as that great-grandchild of the queen has a new identity and purpose because of that relationship. So do we as well. Are you living in light of that identity and that purpose? How are we to continue demonstrating that grace together? How will you pursue that purpose? Let's close in prayer. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice in you again in the gospel. It changes everything about us. And Lord, as Peter has demonstrated, we have not yet heard it enough. We need to continually be reminded who we are in you. He uses this incredibly, even strange word picture to show us how we're related. To encourage us to stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we face this week, as we face the hardships that are a part of life, may we rest in you, our King, our Lord, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.